Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman, and our guest today is Kirsten Weld, author of Paper Cadavers, The Archives of Dictatorship in Guatemala. The book tells the story of the discovery of a vast police archive in Guatemala. Officials had long denied that it existed, and for good reason, because it documented years of kidnapping and murder under the auspices of counterinsurgency. Weld's book accounts for the repercussions of that discovery on many levels. It is at once an ethnography of human rights activists turned archivists, an argument about the centrality of the production of knowledge with regards to both repression and human rights work, and a gripping account of the debates and politics of Guatemala's reckoning with the legacies of its dirty war. Kirsten, welcome, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian and how you came to the project. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm pretty young still. I'm pretty new uh, at this at this whole thing. And the, the, the way I got interested in history was sort of a, a combination of, of things. One was always having been interested in how people define themselves in the present with reference to pasts, both kind of real and historical and also sort of imagined or internal or psychological. And I, I just always was interested in how people looked backwards in order to um, define themselves, to think of themselves as especially political actors um, in the present day. And then the sort of silly reason why I became a historian goes back to my undergraduate years where history um, at McGill University was the only major that didn't have any required introductory methods classes. There's no, you know, intro to sociology, intro to psych, intro to poli sci. There was no intro to history kind of terrible basic course that one had to suffer through. And I really liked not being constrained by a sort of set way of having to do things uh, in the way that it seemed like other disciplines sort of forced a certain set of methods upon their practitioners, history really seemed like a bit more of a free space where you could, uh, you know, you, you could come at the idea of history from any number of different directions. And I thought that that was very freeing. Um, so that's sort of really how I, I, I got into starting to take history classes. And then uh, when I was uh, about 19 years old, um, I ended up somewhat by chance, or rather on the sort of recommendation of a friend, going to Guatemala for the first time. And it wasn't a place that I'd ever really known anything about or felt any particular draw to, um, but I ended up going with this friend of mine, and we decided that we wanted to study Spanish, something I had never done before. Um, and I got to Guatemala and just sort of fell in love with the place, um, felt very, very drawn to it in, in a way that's still a little bit hard for me to, to quantify. Um, but so after that original trip to Guatemala, I spent about two months there, I, I started going back. Um, and that was really what kind of set me on a, the path towards realizing that, that I had a kind of deeper commitment to this place that I, that I wanted to, to continue exploring in graduate school and then, you know, ultimately um, as a historian sort of for the rest of my life. Thank you. 
So you begin this book with the image of a discovery of a maze of rooms in 2005 that's piled high with bundles of moldy records dating back more than a century, as you say. The, the largest, it's the largest collection of secret documents in Latin American history. But so rather than plunging in right into what the documents say, like other historians might, you take a step back and in conversation with authors like Catherine Burns, Anne Stoller, Carolyn Steedman, and Michelle Rofrio, you tell the story of the archive itself. Can you tell us why this is important? Sure. It, the Guatemala, as you know, uh, had a, a sort of incomplete or, or um, sort of tense process by which it emerged or, or didn't really emerge from a long civil war into this sort of very charged, you could call it peace, but it hasn't been very peaceful. Um, and when the news that this massive cache of records had been not just discovered, but discovered accidentally, surprisingly serendipitously, um, it was pretty obvious to me that, that this was going to be something of a game changer in terms of how Guatemalan society was, was going to continue the process um, or return to the process or in some other way take up the process of dealing with this, uh, this very difficult past and its ongoing uh, implications for a very difficult present. And so when I first read about the discovery of these archives, which was a couple of months after it actually took place, um, I was, I started to kind of look for other examples or literature that I could use to sort of orient myself in terms of thinking about, well, what is the relationship between archives and societies? What is the connection between papers produced by states and governments, you know, in some cases, very old papers produced by long gone states and governments, and citizens' senses of themselves as political actors, their ability to make claims on the state. Um, what, 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 what's the connection there between the sort of papers produced by, by uh, a society, by powers in a society, and the people who have to occupy that society and deal with those powers in their daily lives? And so that took me to a few different texts, none of which were particularly, none of, well, none of which had anything to do with Guatemala, per se. Some of them were sort of more familiar Latin Americanist or Caribbeanist texts, like, like Cuyo and, and Silencing the Past. Um, Derrida was, you know, that's the sort of classic uh, book that everybody talks about when they want to talk about sort of capital T, capital A, the archive, writ large, although, you know, it's, I, I think you can have a real debate about how, how useful, how useful that text really is in terms of thinking about concrete examples of the relationships between, between citizens and archives. Um, but so, so I started kind of trying to pull together different points of reference that would help me think through what this archive could mean. And part of why I took that step back and tried to think about the archive in a kind of sociological and political sense, as opposed to the sense in which a historian might normally be expected to, to look at an archive like this, which is raw material, right? Let's get into the content. Let's drill down and see what do these papers actually say. And part of why I didn't want to do that was a, this sort of pre-existing interest that I had in sort of how people construct narratives about, 
their pasts as a way of doing politics in the present. Um, and then the other part of it was really kind of more of a logistical thing that the archive itself sort of forced upon me and everybody else, which was the fact that we're talking about what is estimated to be 80 million pages of material, much of which was in extremely uh, dire conditions of decay, uh, of physical disorganization. Um, Part of the issue was that because the national police in Guatemala had always operated more or less in secret, nobody really knew how it functioned organizationally speaking as, as a structure. And so if you don't actually understand the history of an institution, you can't just kind of dive into its files. Because if you find, you know, a particular document that was generated by the detective corps, you can't really understand what that document's all about unless you understand, well, okay, well, what is the detective corps? What role did it fulfill within the national police? Who did it answer to? Uh, what, you know, areas of the city or the country was it responsible for? And so before you can really get into the content of the files, you had to do this other this whole other set of work, which was to try to actually piece together what the history of the police itself was. And then before you could even try to do that, you're dealing with these incredible logistical and technical challenges of dimension of the archive, conditions of the archive, um, and trying to figure out really in a sort of sui generis fashion how these documents, which were seen by some sectors of Guatemalan society still to be very threatening, um, were going to be rescued at all. And when when the records were first discovered, it was not at all clear that what we can see today, which is this amazing, paradigmatic, kind of world-renowned, successful human rights archival rescue initiative, was going to ever exist. I mean, that it seems like a sort of foregone conclusion now, but at the beginning, you really had a group of, you know, 10 Guatemalan volunteers with sort of shovels uh, and none of them with any experience working in archives. Um, these, are, these are not trained archivists doing this work who are basically sort of standing around looking at each other saying, we know we've happened upon something incredible, but we do not have the tools or the resources to make sense of it. And we need to figure out what to do. So the, the, the sort of physical impossibility of getting into the archives in the way that a traditional historian might want to do was for me, you know, A, it sort of pushed me in this other direction. Um, but I'm really glad that it did, uh, because I think that, that, you know, the telling the sort of history of the police itself is a very important project, but it's not actually the project I wanted to do. The project I wanted to do was to look at the impact of this archive as a memory site, as a, um, point of contention as a sort of finger in the wound, to use um, Diane Nelson's phrase, uh, in this sort of stuck moment in post-war Guatemala where you'd had a truth commission, you'd had the Catholic Church's own truth commission, um, and then you had this, this sort of uh, kind of plateau um, where the conversation hadn't really continued beyond that point. And so what I wanted to look at was was the sort of impact of, of, of this archive, uh, not only in terms of its content, but also in terms of its form um, and in, in terms of its sort of instantiation as a kind of political problem um, ra- rather than just a kind of source of evidence. Of course, those two things are related to each other. And what I wanted to do and what I tried to do in the book was, was kind of look at both both of those dimensions of the archive. 
So in your answer, I heard uh, something that I was thinking about a lot as I read the book, which is that you really draw on, and something also that you alluded to when you were talking about your own uh, introduction to the field, which is um, that you really draw on lots of different methodological approaches. And I think that that was one of the more that was one, one of the more really interesting aspects of the book. But so before we get into the details of each of the sections, I'd, I'd really like to hear more about how you decided to organize the book, too, which is so it's not a straight sort of chronology. But the way I read it, uh, it, it begins at the moment of rescue, and then it goes back in time to the to the actual events that the documents document, and then it goes forward again and almost into the future as you project the possibilities for the archive. And so it's an unusual shape, but I think it's evocative of the kind of multi-temporal nature of the project that you're that you're engaging in. And I'm wondering, did you envision that structure to help you make the arguments you, you thought were most important? How did you come to that to that structure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's a very good question. Um, part of it was that I, from the beginning, and I'm not totally... You know, I I have a hard time remembering the sort of exact moment where this became clear to me, but it did eventually become clear to me that, um, the way I phrase this in the book is that there's this tension between these two different logics that had been applied to this archive over time. That basically we're talking about one set of physical papers. The papers are always the same, but that what was interesting about them was this sort of dynamic tension between the uses to which that set of papers had been put during um, past Guatemalan regimes and during the counterinsurgency in particular, uh, a logic, an organizational logic of the archive that was oriented around uh, executing social control, political oppression, uh, fighting communism, however you want to put it. Um, And then that in the present, or at least the post-2005 present, you had a set of human rights activists who were trying to take the very same physical set of papers and organize them again, but applying a completely different logic to them, which is this logic of opening and transparency and shedding light on the past and... um, you know, opening up a space um, for debate and contestation in Guatemalan society rather than closing it down, which had been the original logic. And so to me, that was just a sort of very clear kind of dialectic tension between these two ways of conceiving of and using the same set of papers. And so that sort of created the split between what are the second and the third sections of the book, the the second section being the the one that casts back um, into the 1950s and 60s, which tells the story of United States uh, assistance in the building up of the archive as a counterinsurgent tool to be used by the Guatemalan state against its citizens. Um, And then the third part of the book, which looks at the sort of lived experience of the activists who are actually doing the work of trying to take this set of papers, pull them out of that first archival logic and kind of apply to them this second archival logic. So that's how I got the kind of split between the second and third sections. The first section really just tells the story of the discovery of the archives. And I wanted to set that apart on its own in a way where it could almost be kind of read on its own, um, just because the, the story of the discovery of the archives is such a wild story. You know, it's one of these stories that you kind of luck into as, as a storyteller because it's so unlikely um, 
the whole sort of accidental nature of the discovery, which had to do with, you know, an explosion on a military base, a, a whole set of circumstances that nobody could have predicted. And then the sort of surprise reappearance of a set of papers whose existence had been denied for years at the very highest levels of, of Guatemala's government. And so for them to reappear was this really very shocking and surprising thing. And and the, the, the sort of conditions of the archive in its reappearance, just the, the, you know, I try to evoke this in the book, but it's impossible. And, you know, people have taken photographs and there's no photograph that I've seen that really kind of sums up the, uh, physical reality of what these archives looked like when they were found. I mean, just the, this, this vast winding set of warehouses, these dark, musty, wet, rooms covered in mold, infested with bats. You'd pull open a gunny sack of documents and you'd have fleas, you know, hopping up and down your forearms. You'd go in there um, in the morning and, you know, you could literally crawl on in crawl spaces on top of these six foot high or six foot deep beds of loose papers. And you'd leave at the end of the day covered from head to toe in in filth. And if you've ever read um, Carolyn Steedman's uh, book, Dust, where she really talks about the kind of physicality of the dust of the archives and how, as the researcher, you're, you're actually breathing in the dead. You're breathing in these little sort of dustified particles of the documents. And that, that's exactly what this was. You know, you'd come out and your lungs were full of the archives. Um, everyone was sick all the time, coughing. All of the folks who were working in the archives had these horrific respiratory infections all the time. We're always getting sinus surgeries. Everyone's eyes were red all the time. It was this sort of, you know, intensely um, disgusting, actually, uh, sort of space in a lot of ways. But that kind of sediment that was so visible there and the kind of violence of this space, which was a former, it was a, a police base um, that had previously been used as a detention center. It's in an area of Guatemala City that's uh, a pretty rough area of Guatemala City. It's surrounded by these fields and fields of old junked cars. Anytime there's a, a traffic accident, a car gets wrecked in Guatemala City, the car gets towed to this particular site. And so you're surrounded by garbage. There's, you know, vermin everywhere. And yet it's this treasure. Um, it's this incredible thing. And you had people from a variety of different sectors, researchers, sure, but really, you know, first and foremost, um, family members of people who had been killed or had been disappeared in Guatemala, who were just clamoring to get into this disgusting, horrible, difficult, depressing space, because it was full of promise, because it, it was clear, you know, it wasn't clear what the answers were going to be, uh, which questions the archive was going to be able to answer, but it was obvious that that some people's questions were going to be able to be answered with this archive. And so I, I wanted to kind of carve out the sort of first piece of the book just to, to really kind of try to give people a sense of the, the kind of feel of the place and, and how many emotions it awoke for people um, to learn that this 
set of documents whose existence had been had been blocked and denied for so long, you know, had actually existed all along. Um, and that that was, you know, this, this really amazing thing. And so the, the first part of the book kind of tells the story. Second part casts back to show sort of how this archive came to be and, and why it was able to acquire so much power during the Civil War itself. The third part then looks at the kind of lived experience of the process of trying to rescue um, the, the files, um, which is work that was carried out by people who themselves were protagonists in the long Guatemalan civil conflict in a variety of different ways. Some of them were teachers, some were students, some were trade unionists, some were members of insurgent organizations, um, some were just regular citizens who happened to be living through a, a, a very uh, gruesome civil war and to, to sort of have that permeate their environment. Um, others of them were young members of, of new generations. And, and I was really interested in kind of why would these young people want to go into this dark memory space and, and contribute to the effort of trying to recover it. So, so that's the third part. And then it just seemed natural that uh, the fourth part of the book would kind of try to look at, you know, if, if we're thinking about the sort of the second and third parts, the kind of past and the present of the archives, the, the previous logic and the current logic as existing in a kind of dynamic tension with one another, then that sort of begs the question of, okay, well, what's the resolution of that tension? What's the synthesis going to be? Um, and so the fourth part of the book tries to still in the early stages of the impact of the archives, because we've only known about them now for, you know, not even 10 full years. Um, but nonetheless, to try to take stock of, okay, well, what has the impact of this discovery been? Has it brought any kind of meaningful change to Guatemala in terms of the way people think about the past? Um, what do we, what, 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 what is the social and political value of this, of this archive, given that, we now know something that we didn't know at the beginning, which is that it survived. It survived nine years. And, you know, when I first got there in um, May, I think it was April or May of 2006, the very first week I got there, there was a Molotov cocktail thrown into the site uh, under the cover of, of darkness and arson attempt. Somebody tried to burn the place down. And that happened... Uh, uh, more than a handful of times over the course of the archives' existence, the people working there faced all manner of threats, both direct and indirect, which is you know pretty standard in Guatemala for for human rights work. And so it was not at all obvious at the beginning when I started this project that there was actually going to be a fourth part of the book, or even a book at all, um, because it seemed you know just as likely that someone was going to find some way to shut this down eight months in, a year in, two years in. But luckily, the project was able to survive, and so I was able to, 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 to write that, that fourth piece of the book and to look at some of the very real um, and tangible effects of this archive's discovery, which have included successful prosecutions of former police and military officials for war crimes, um, which have included... Uh, all manner of interesting forms of cultural production centered around the archive, like documentary films, popular education projects, um, neat kinds of, of initiatives that have sort of taken the archives as a sort of point of departure novels. I mean, it's, it's really become this 
people are fascinated by this archive as a sort of transfixing thing, myself included. Um, and so, so that's what the last part of the book tries to do is to say, okay, so what, what can we, what, what have we seen so far as a result of this? And, and what do we think, you know, where do we think this might be headed in the future? What's the sort of long range look at this archive if indeed it is able to continue um, existing and surviving and, and, and even thriving? Great. And I think that we'll get back to some of these arguments a little bit later. But for now, I, I was really interested in the, in the first section. And like you, uh, like you said, the materiality of it is really important. And I, I was reminded of Carolyn Steedman's book, mm-hmm. Dust, and the, the objects that are present in your own narrative, like insects and soccer balls and tape and food mm-hmm. and pets and all of those things that become really important to the daily lives of the people who are working there. Um, and those, the workers themselves are really fascinating because they're not, like you said, they're not trained archivists. And so part of the story is to actually um, discipline them to, to, to take the time and figure out how archivists work. And it reminded me actually of the kinds of seminars we have with grad students before we send them off to the archive and, and talking talking to them about the importance of provenance and order and bureaucratic organization and things that might sound kind of dull, but that are actually really very important, right? So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that process. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that, that you guys do those kinds of seminars for graduate students because I never had a seminar like that. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think most graduate students in history do actually. And, you know, so, so I consider myself to have been very lucky because basically once I got down to Guatemala to try to figure out what my role in all this was going to be, there was a consulting archivist um, who had been, um, hired and, 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 uh, had been brought in by the Swiss embassy is one of the ways that they're not the Swiss embassy, but the Swiss development agency, um, as, as one of the ways that they were supporting the rescue of these archives, they brought in this really amazing American archivist named Trudy Peterson to train the Guatemalans precisely to carry out this process of disciplining them and transforming them into archivists by teaching them about, these core archival principles, provenance, original order, the fact that, you you know, you couldn't just sort of start plucking documents out of the pile willy-nilly and using them, that you really had to develop a system um, for the rescue of these files. And so in the same way that uh, the Guatemalans were being sort of disciplined into uh, the norms of archival science, I, by virtue of the fact that I was tagging along and that they'd asked me to translate for Trudy Peterson, because they didn't actually have a translator on hand, um, I ended up receiving this incredible education from one of the most brilliant archivists in the world um, about how to think about an archive as a system from the sort of ground up to build it from the beginning, right? Because there's, there's sort of one kind of understanding that you uh, you pick up from using an archive that's already there, but then there's a sort of whole other level on which you apprehend the kind of organizing principles of an archive when you've actually got to kind of decode one that already existed and then rebuild it from the ground up. And that's the process that I was able to, to accompany while I was there. But it was really tough because the, you know, in in Guatemala at the time when the archives were found, there were fewer than 10 certified archivists in the whole country. I think there were eight. Um, And so they really just sort of didn't have the kind of internal, capacity to be able to manage uh, an effort, an initiative of this magnitude. Um, Although Guatemalan archivists were involved from the beginning and and, and played really decisive roles as as well. Um, But uh, 
the the people who were originally drawn to the archive, like I said, were people who had some kind of personal political connection to the history that it was assumed or imagined that these archives would document, right? And that turned out to be true, that there was a, a tremendous amount of evidence uh, in these archives about political repression, about um, oppositional social movements and their destruction. Um, and so the people who were the original volunteers uh, on the rescue effort, again, they weren't archivists, they weren't library scientists. Many of them had never actually had a formal education per se, um, but they had tremendously deep and rich bodies of knowledge about their country's political history um, and direct experiences of that history uh, as, as protagonists. And so there was this sense of excitement and elation of finally we found the proof that's going to demonstrate that everything we've been saying for all these years was was true and we weren't just making it up, that these things did happen, because there's this sort of very powerful counter-narrative from kind of official Guatemala that, you know, really, the, this is sort of Holocaust denial, that, that, that oh, these things are exaggerated, that really not that many people were killed, and if they were killed, they probably deserved it. And in the absence of documentary evidence, it was difficult for human rights activists to, I mean, it wasn't really difficult for them to substantiate their claims because there are other forms of evidence, testimonial evidence, forensic evidence. But nonetheless, there was still this sense that, you know, they couldn't point to evidence in the state's own hand um, saying that that their claims were true. And now they could. Um, so there was this tremendous eagerness on the part of political activists to get into the archives and say, look at all the evidence here. We can prove what happened. You know, let's go to court tomorrow. And what the archival training sort of forced upon everybody was this, you know, at, at first kind of uh, unhappy lesson that you couldn't do it that way. You couldn't just rush in and start pulling out evidence that, in fact, you actually had to create, observe and respect a chain of custody for all the documents. You couldn't sort of pull one document out and take it to the courthouse. You needed to be able to establish the provenance and restore the original order of that document and then create a three-dimensional map of the entire site, a system to track and document any movement of any particular file or document within the vast and sprawling site so that you could say, we didn't just make up or, 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 or duplicate or, or tamper with this document. This is an original document from, from the collection of the police. Um, and so there was this, at first, this sort of uh, discontent uh, among the, the, the folks on the team who said, why do we have to waste all this time with this original order stuff? We're not archivists. You know, we don't, we're not, we're not going to go be archivists after this. We're activists. We want to use this for activism. Um, and what the archivists, both the Guatemalan archivists and the, and, and the U.S. archivists, you know, sort of continued to, to reiterate was you can't do the human rights activist work that you want to do unless we do this archivist work first. Um, and so there was a kind of learning curve whereby people really had to assimilate this set of archival principles and had to absorb a, 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 you know, really quite demanding and technical education in the methods of archival description and organization. And so, you know, and, and me as the fly on the wall of, as this whole process was happening and as a kind of 
participant in the effort to try to communicate the the importance of the sort of archival side of things as as the translator, um, you know, meant that that I got to learn about all sorts of things that I never thought I would, would learn about, like the international standards for archival description um, and a whole uh, specialized vocabulary in Spanish of archival terms, which are, you know, the same, they're, they're words that have double meanings. They're very common Spanish words that mean something different in the context of archives than they do in the context of, of casual conversation. And so I really kind of picked up all of these sort of bits. I mean, I'm no archivist and I would never claim to be one. Um, but, but I do feel so privileged to have received this sort of parallel accidental education um, by virtue of watching the Guatemalans receive the same one. And now you have more than 200 Guatemalans for, of all ages and from all social backgrounds who can now hold forth very comfortably and confidently about the standard, the international standards for archival description, or who can talk to you about archival preservation methods um, or, 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 or any of the rest of it. And so it's, it's, you know, as a kind of capacity building exercise, what this project has brought to Guatemala, in addition to all of the things we originally think about, you know, sort of human rights evidence and, and prosecutions and reckoning with the past and historical memory, it's also brought to Guatemala a, a massive multiplication of the number of Guatemalans who are conversant in modern um, archival standards and technologies. And that, I think, is going to have a kind of whole other set of ripple effects in terms of um, building up the sector of the population that is extremely well-educated um, and, and, and conscious of the importance of not letting old papers uh, be left to rot um, or be thrown away or be burned, that rather these old papers can actually hold the key to any number of, of pressing social and political issues in the present. It's a very concrete example of the argument that you make that that um, archival thinking is necessary for human rights work. And I think that the second section, which moves us back in time, makes the, makes the, the twin argument that, that policing is also deeply integrated with archival thinking. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this moment that you trace the 1950s and 60s and a little bit of the 70s when the archives were created and in, in particular the National Police, which we haven't really even talked about yet, which generated the archive. And I'm also interested in the role of the United States in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the role of the United States was, was very important. And this was not something that I'd really known anything about um, before starting this project. I mean, we know that the United States had supported the Guatemalan military, but the, the version of the story that is sort of commonly known about the Guatemalan Civil War had not until 2005, really involved the police at all. Um, it had become, by virtue of the, you know, the sort of popularization of, of a version of, of, of Guatemalan history, a story about the army and rural Guatemalans in the countryside. We never heard much about the capital city. We never heard much of anything about the police. And so, you know, I hadn't really thought much about the police as, a, as an institution, um, and there are a few different reasons for, for that silencing or that sort of occluding of the role of the police, um, which are kind of curious because it's something that Guatemalans were very much aware of during the conflict itself, the, 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 the importance of the police as a kind of plank of this counterinsurgent state apparatus. But that side of the story kind of fell out of the picture. Um, 
as, as the sort of 80s and 90s wore on. But but in any event, the, the police turned out to have been very important, um, particularly in the carrying out, if not the sort of overall design of specific targeted acts of political repression. Um, one of the things we think of when we think about the genocide in Guatemala is we think about the army kind of bulldozing entire communities of Mayas um, with, you know, without respect to whether or not those people had political involvement of any kind. We, you know, we think about indiscriminate mass murder, and that did happen. That happened a lot. Um, but you also have this, especially in the capital city, this very different kind of surgical repression where state uh, organs, state security forces would build up surveillance files on particular individuals or social movements that it found to be threatening, uh, would, would watch and observe those individuals for a long time, and then a certain moment would come where that person would be would be singled out or would be identified as, as having to go now, and that person would be executed or would be disappeared, detained. And so the, the police were instrumental in the execution of that kind of repression in the capital city, which, you know, through the 1970s and the early 1980s was where many of the most important and most active social movement organizations in the country were based. So not all of them by any stretch, but a number of very important ones. And so um, the, the, the police, the escalation of police repression was crucial in pushing oppositional politics out of Guatemala City and into the countryside, which is what created the conditions that allowed the genocide to take place. So <clears throat> they're very important there. And when I began researching, um, I wanted to go to the U.S. National Archives because I, I knew there had been a program wherein the United States government, um, through what the organization that became USAID, had a set of different names before uh, it became USAID in 1962. But I knew there had been support given to the National Police, but I, I, I wanted to learn more about what that had looked like. And so I went. And, you know, I was expecting to find... Uh, documents, you know, that, that, that attested to purchases by United States uh, trainers of weapons and munition for the Guatemalans, um, the sending down of trainers to help train the Guatemalan police in modern investigative methods, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and what I was not expecting to find was that one of the sort of main areas on which the U.S., police trainers focused as they were trying to professionalize and optimize the Guatemalan police as an anti-communist counterinsurgency force um, was the development of archival capacity that the U.S. trainers were nigh on obsessed with getting the Guatemalans to improve um, and expand their use of archives as quite expressly defined as, as a tool of social control, right? That if what we're doing here is we are trying to track down and combat the communists, well, then you need to know who the communists are. You need to keep track of who the communists are. Where do the communists live? Who do they associate with? What daily routes do they travel in case we need to intercept them? Um, and so what the United States trainers did, both through providing uh, on-site seminars in things like record keeping and also in terms of sending supplies that you would need to build a kind of modern central archives for a police force like filing cabinets and file cards and, and fingerprinting equipment and that kind of thing. Um, 
you know, what, what they did was, was very expressly designed to beef up archival capacity as a way of beefing up counterinsurgent capacity. And so when I started to see this and find the documents that, that, that spoke to this, you know, I just really sort of started to think more about, well, what, what is policing? Really, um, what 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 are the what's the sort of logic of police work? Um, and I think there are you know I'm, I'm no expert in sort of police studies. There's a whole uh, you know kind of field of scholarship there. Um, but one thing that seemed pretty obvious to me was you know the, the, what is the first thing that I think of as a, a poli- that I think of a police officer doing to a citizen or with a citizen? I think of them doing a background check, you know, a sort of administrative procedure. And well, what's a background check? A background check is you go look at the archive. Right, you can't do a background check unless there are files, unless those files are systematized, unless there is a way for um, a particular member of a police organization to kind of tap into that archive and 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 get this sort of legible result, which is the sort of you know fact sheet documenting all of the ways in which a particular citizen has been made legible to state authorities. Um, and so that's where I really started to think about the police as as archivers. Um, and, and to think about the role of intelligence work and counterintelligence work as, as a, you know, really fundamentally archival. And, you know, that kind of created a set of sort of uncomfortable uh, conflicts in the sense that, you know, everyone I was thinking about, right, my, my human rights, in my, the human rights activists, the police, um, the United States trainers, everyone is building archives, Everyone is trying to reckon with archives. Um, and, you know, that really kind of gave the lie to this notion that, you know, all of us historians have to deal with at some point or another, that archives are these kind of like boring old places that nobody ever goes to that are kind of socially useless, you know, these sort of musty old repositories of stuff, kind of this this antiquarian sense of, of the archive as the place that a kind of couple of tweedy old history professors go to every once in a while. And suddenly it was obvious to me that that's not what archives are at all. Archives are where all the action is happening. Archives are where you have, you you know, the, the, where, where the sort of stakes of politics are thrown into uh, tremendously sharp relief uh, because we see that archives are tools that make or break social movements. Archives are tools that make or break governments. Um, archives in certain hands can be tremendously empowering and useful. Um, and in other hands, they can be incredibly destructive, uh, corrosive, tools of, of social decomposition. Um, and so, so that was where I, I that, that, that was sort of the, the origin of my kind of thinking of archiving as this inherently political act. Uh, and something that was not, that was, you know, cause there's a sort of set of theoretical writings about the archive. Um, and those I have found very interesting and generative, but to me, I was always more, you know, for me, what was more interesting was the actual sort of concrete uh, connections between archives and power, archives and repression, archives and revindication, that you didn't need to sort of 
create a set of theoretical apparatuses to think through those kinds of relationships. We had a real live example right here with these police archives and many, many other examples all around the world, you know, from different kinds of colonial records to the Stasi archives in East Germany to WikiLeaks and, you know, NSA records in, in the United States. I mean, there's any number of examples of how archives are, are, are these tremendously charged and potent sites of power. And so that for me was, was really the kind of animating principle of the whole thing. And as a historian, you know, to me that, that opened up a really interesting opportunity to try to make a case for the work of history and historical reconstruction as not just sometimes political or political if you want it to be, but sort of inseparably, uh, inherently political, always connected to power, always connected to the narratives through which power is established or contested. And, and to me, that was very appealing because that's, you know, that, that's why I got into this in the first place, right, with how people use, use history and I, their ideas about history and what happened in the past um, to, to build senses of themselves in the present um, and to get done the work that they want to do today and in the future. Thanks. I think that you just made some archivists very happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so the, the, the final uh, part of the book really zooms in on the lives and in particular the lives of the people working in the archives. And one of the most striking sections that uh, of that part was where you talk about the unexpected relationships that grow up between the leftist ar- activists working in the archive and the state security agents who were assigned to oversee the process. And in some ways, I, I guess it's it's sort of the the embodiment of the two parts of your argument actually coming together and working together physically in the archive. And I, I, I saw this as a kind of version of the reconciliation that has been so elusive in so many post-Dirty War scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you saw it that way and um, if there are limits to that. I think that there are definitely very real limits to it. I mean, I think that the... So first of all, the sort of rapprochement to the extent that, that it existed between uh, the the activists doing the archival rescue and the officers who were on the police base, because all of, you know, the whole story unfolds on an active police base. And that's where the archives still are to this day, on an active police base. So, you know, you have all of these activists who are really operating in kind of unfamiliar and unfriendly territory, right? Um, And from the beginning, they have to have these very close uh, working relationships with people who they may ideologically uh, not have very much in common with, is a sort of understated way to put it. And so what, what ended up happening was that I think the activists' understanding of the importance of these archives um, and the potential that they had to answer questions um, that, that, that really needed to be answered meant that they really made a, a very concerted effort to create as, as positive a working experience as possible, a working relationship as possible uh, with the police who, who, who they couldn't get rid of. You know, those police agents are going to be there. Um, they're kind of keeping an eye on things, making sure. It wasn't really clear ever what exactly they were making sure of, <laughs> but they were stationed there. there. It was their job to be there to kind of keep an eye on uh, on, on, on the activists. And, and so that's what they did. And I think that um, the there, there was a sort of 
decision made by the leadership of the project that we're we're going to we're going to treat these people with respect. We're going to do our very best to have a positive working environment here because even though we don't like it, uh, this is what we have to do in order to get this done. If we want these archives, then we have to kind of take them on their own terms and we have to accept the presence of, of these police officials. Um, and that's where it began. And then I think over time, and this was a lot easier for the, the older uh, generations of workers at the archives than it was for some of the, the younger people who I think had a kind of more um, rebellious sort of, you know, kind of a relationship or sense of themselves vis-a-vis the police. Um, but for the older folks, they, you know, started to kind of, it was probably the first time a lot of them had actually coexisted in close spaces with police officers and police agents. And we're talking about, for the most part, very low ranking police agents who tended to have been sent to the archives as a punishment, a demotion. They had angered some superior officer in some way. And that's why they were sent down to, to, to sort of banish the archives. Um, and they started to see that these were, first of all, predominantly women police agents, um, that these were people who had very little power within their organization, who were being paid uh, appalling, I mean, appalling wages. And this is one of the sort of ongoing issues when Guatemalans talk about police reform is that the police are paid so little in Guatemala that, you know, it it really sets up the conditions where you're going to have police, uh, members of the police, uh, engaging in corruption just to be able to buy food for their kids. Um, and so, yeah, you had this certain kind of humanization. And, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody at the archives at all, um, nor do I want to overstate the nature of this rapprochement, but you did have a certain softening and a certain kind of respectful coexistence that sort of started to um develop in especially the early days and for the members of the rescue team who were there from the very beginning when the conditions were just horrible because the active, you know, the, the, the human rights team didn't have, for example, uh, you know, big, the big garrafons of water. Um, and so the police would share their water with them or the, you know, people had brought their lunches and wanted to heat them up. Uh, the police would let the, the, the archive staff use their microwave, just little things like that. Um, that, you know, when you start to accumulate those over time, um, helped to kind of build a, a somewhat more sort of humane, um, you know, kind of coexistence on the site. But, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, you're still talking about sort of two sectors of the population that have historically been very much opposed to each other's existence. Um, and, you know, and a set of broader political realities vis-a-vis the police as an organization writ large that, you know, you kind of can't really get past. And so even if there were um, more slightly warmer relations between, you know, the individual police staffers who were there at the archives every day, that was sort of one thing that didn't really change people's sense of the kind of historical responsibility and complicity of the national police as an institution in the history that they were researching. So yeah, I think there are very real limits uh, to, to, to what, what kind of closeness was, was able to have been achieved. 
So this brings us to a question I wanted to ask you by way of closing. And towards the end of the book, you describe a very fraught scene in which the much-awaited release of a report on human rights violations turns out to be toothless and watered down. And so I was wondering if we can close by just having you take us through the legacies of that moment and talk about the status of that archive and of truth-making in Guatemala today. Mm-hmm. What had happened was that the archive had originally... Uh, been sort of shepherded or protected by an outfit in Guatemala, which is called the Human Rights Ombudsman's Office. And the Human Rights Ombudsman's Office is a, is a, a great idea. Um, and I think all of the countries of Central America have similar human rights ombudsman structures. Um, but in Guatemala, the Human Rights Ombudsman's Office is a very sort of vertical organization that where, where everything is dependent upon the figure of whomever happens to be the ombudsman at any given period in time. And the ombudsman is a congressional appointee. So they're sort of meant to be separate from the government, but they're also still related to the government. And what ended up happening was the the former head, the former ombudsman, um, who had started out really having, you know, made some some decisive uh, moves uh, to protect the archives, ended up basically deciding to try to use the archives as a bargaining chip in his own effort to secure more political power for himself. And what the sort of culmination of this was um, when the ombudsman's office was going to release a report that had been written by the the archival staff, the, the, the people on the ground doing the rescue of the archives. And they spent years putting together this incredible report that was full of um, quite hard-hitting individual case studies where they'd been able to recuperate files on particular individuals and, and, and campaigns by the police to target, go after, and in some cases eliminate those particular individuals. And so they put together this tremendous report, but it had to go through the ombudsman's office for editing. And what ended up becoming clear in the aftermath was that the ombudsman at that time had made a deal um, with the sitting government, which was a conservative government, that he would basically tamp down any explosive revelations from the archives in exchange for benefits uh, for himself uh, in the political arena at some point down the road. And so what happened was that the report that the archive staff submitted ended up being bodlerized, basically being censored. And then this kind of watered-down version of it was released. And it was this moment of incredible disillusion for all of the archive staff, who at that point had been working for four or five years nonstop, basically around the clock, to try to bring the evidence from the archives to light and bring it to bear on um, possibilities for justice in the Guatemalan post-war period. And, you know, for, it, it sort of seemed at once that all of those hopes had been dashed. And so there was, there was a tremendous amount of disappointment and, and disillusion. What ended up happening, however, is that as a result of this sort of kind of ham-handed obviousness with which the ombudsman's office had tried to kind of shut down uh, the, the, the political impact of the archives, what ended up happening is that provided the impetus for a wider constellation of human rights organizations in Guatemala to basically unite around the archive and then demand of the new government, which was a, at that point then a, a more progressive government, um, to, uh, to take the archives out of the hands of the ombudsman's office and put them under the custody of the National Archives System, which you could argue should have happened from the beginning, but the National Archives System didn't have the resources to, to take care of the archives, and the, the ombudsman's office did. 
And so there was a move, and the president actually intervenes, is when Colomb was, was the president, um, actually made an intervention and took the archives away from the ombudsman's office where they could no longer be used as a political tool for the personal enrichment of one person um, and put them into the National Archives system where they could actually be integrated into the broader uh, system of historical patrimony of the country. And since that's happened, there's really been um, a kind of new level of institutional stability for the archives, as well as a greater degree of political independence. And so what ended up happening was a couple of years after that first sort of disillusioning moment in which the, the kind of censored report was released, um, the complete report was released. Uh, and it's subsequently been translated into English. Um, so for students, it's actually a tremendously useful resource, students in the United States and Canada. Um, and so now that report exists in its entirety, and the staffers on the ground are continuing to do research. I mean, there's enough material there for a thousand researchers for a hundred years, you know, however many dissertations, you know, I couldn't even imagine. Um, and so the research is still ongoing, but that kind of original first report, the sort of early yield of the investigation in the archives is now in the public domain and nobody can take that away. Um, there have also been some really interesting uh, international collaborations uh, with uh, a couple of North American universities, among others, um, that have helped to, uh, again, sort of preserve the archive in the longer term and also lend the archive an institutional stability that, that renders it less likely that the archive could ever be shut down for political reasons. One of those is uh, initiative through the, United, uh, the University of Texas that uh, is putting all the digits. So one of the things that they're doing is digitizing the archive, right? And now something like 15 million pages of the total 80 million have been digitized and are now freely available online um, on a, a website that's hosted by the, the University of Texas library system. Um, and so there's there's been this real sort of, uh, on the one hand, you know, the, the whole thing with the ombudsman, I think, demonstrated the fragility of even Guatemala's progressive institutions um, when it comes to resisting the temptations of um, political corruption and the sort of ongoing power of military um, and oligarchic forces in civil institutions. But then on the other hand, despite that, the archive has been able to kind of build its own stability by constructing this really interesting kind of very 21st century sort of network of domestic supporters, international allies, academics, activists, this sort of whole set, and archivists, importantly, from all around the world, this sort of whole set of, of allies who are kind of all standing around the archive and saying, you know, we're, we're going to protect this. We're going to make sure that this, this is able to survive and that people are going to be able to use this for both academic and activist purposes for as long as they want to. And so from where we stand right now, you know, it's not clear exactly how the archive is going to survive. There are funding and logistical issues always, uh, as with any kind of um, human rights project that's dependent on international funding. But it's very clear that in, in a kind of broader, larger sense, the sort of the evidence and the knowledge from the archives is, is not going anywhere. It's not going away. Um, it's established enough now after almost 10 years that, that it can't be destroyed. Uh, and so what what is on the one hand, a very difficult, painful tale of limitations is at the same time a really interesting and inspiring tale of what can be done despite crushing limitations in a place like Guatemala, um, but, you know, by extension in other places too. And, and that's, 
you know, to kind of wrap up, I guess, the, the, one of the, the reasons that I, I loved writing this book so much was that it's, it's such a difficult and painful story in so many ways. Um, it's, it's not that uplifting uh, in a lot of senses. It's pretty, pretty depressing stuff. Um, but at the same time, what really shone through for me and in, in all the years I was lucky enough to, to, to be down there sort of accompanying the project was the power of tenacity and hope and a refusal to give up. And it all sounds a bit cliched, but it's true. And, you know, what this group of incredible Guatemalan activists was able to build in the face of uh, an intensity of opposition uh, that, you know, the likes of which I'd never experienced before and probably will never experience again, um, that they've built this sort of monument to the idea that that, that, that they can have a, a, a different and, and a slightly better world, you know, than the, that they can leave behind than the one that, that they came into. And, and, and that to me was just, you know, incredible privilege to have been able to be a small part of. Thank you so much. Um, I think that is a good place to close given the status of most of uh, Guatemala's human rights issues today. Um, so can we, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but can we just very quickly hear a little bit about what you're working on right now? Sure. Um, so one thing I'm working on right now, which is kind of a coda to this book, is um, sort of an essay trying to think about the to move across a set of humanities and soft social sciences disciplines towards kind of m- putting the archive at the center of the story. Right. People talk about this as being a kind of archival turn or whatever, if you want to use that language and, and trying to think about why maybe historians have not actually done that as much as some of the other disciplines like gender studies or anthropology, um, you know, a couple of other ones have. Um, so trying to really think about, you know, what, 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 what would it mean for historians to have to treat their archives in a kind of self-reflexive fashion in the body of their work, the way that anthropologists do with their field sites. And so kind of trying to think about that. So not in a kind of Guatemala-specific sense, but, but really kind of trying to think about the historian and the archive in the light of this profusion of new literature over the past 20 years that kind of tries to take creative and interdisciplinary looks at, at, at archives as, as sites of analysis. So that's one thing I'm doing. And then, um, but that's, that's a sort of smaller thing. And then um, the next big book project is something of a departure actually from this one. Um, and it, it, it basically is looking at the sort of long-term impact of uh, the Spanish civil war in Latin America, um, not just during the 1930s itself, but actually some of the legacies of the actual Spanish civil war that happened, um, but also the idea of the Spanish civil war, both for left political movements, but also for, for right-wing political movements. Um, and what are some of the kinds of interesting echoes uh, that, that pop up in Latin America from the Spanish Civil War uh, through even into the, the 1970s, 80s, and 1990s? So that's what I'm, I'm working on now. I just got back from a couple of months research in Spain and a couple of months in Mexico before that. And uh, I'll be headed down to the Southern Cone in the spring. And, uh, you know, it's still very, very early stages. So, so I, I couldn't tell you where it's all going to end up, but, uh, but that's what I'm doing now. And having just spend some time trying to do archival research in Spain, I can tell you that the archival politics of looking into uh, the civil war years in Spain are quite complicated indeed. And, and, and definitely some of the lessons I learned from working on the Guatemala project, um, you know, are, 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 are very much 
relevant in the Spanish context, where the National Archives Law uh, is a Franquista piece of legislation in effect since the early 1960s that is designed to uh, basically make it impossible for citizens to get any classified information out of the state um, ever without regard to time limits or you know the passage of time in the states after a certain number of years classified documentation in theory gets declassified in Spain if something was classified once it's classified forever and um, you know, there, so there's movements there of historians and archivists who are trying to get this this law to be changed. Um, but uh, you know, definitely this sense of the sort of state, the, the the authoritarian state's understanding of the power of access to archives and the threat of citizens' access to archives um, has you know structured the, the the passage of this legislation in the 60s and and, and therefore continues to structure how uh, people can or can't do research about about the civil war years in, in Spain to this day. So that was that was a very interesting and unexpected and slightly dispiriting parallel that I found while I was over there doing research. Well, it sounds like you, you embarked on what you describe as a departure that kind of circled back around to, to, to in some ways, the first project, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing more about the, both of those projects in print. And thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, and see you next time.